You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 856. If you do not own a Bible, uh, there are some Bibles available. There's some on the back table that are yellow, and then there should be some black ones in the lobby. I'd love for you to take one of those. All right. Well, how many December birthdays do we have in the room? Anybody? Elise? December? She's the only one? Wow. Okay. Today? Whoa! Elise, happy birthday! Yay! (laughs) All right. Well, I didn't know that, and I wasn't trying to embarrass you. Um... It was my daughter Lily's birthday on Monday, so. But it must be hard having a December birthday, uh, because inevitably your birthday is going to get overshadowed by Christmas, a birthday that is obviously a little more important than our own. And again, I was thinking about it this week, Lily's birthday was on Monday, uh, and she had a party on Wednesday, and as much as we were excited about that, as much as her and her friends stayed up until four in the morning... Uh, you know, the Christmas tree was up, the decorations were up, packages are arriving every day. Anticipation of Christmas is just everywhere, right? It dominates our thoughts. And I think the birth of John the Baptist is kind of like the December birthday. It tends to get overshadowed a little bit by the birth of Jesus, Again, we tend to want to kind of just skip over the details and just read the Christmas story, right? We don't want to talk about John's birth, or we don't want to talk like Chris talked about, about you know, the 400 years of silence and everything that led up to this. But Luke, unlike the other gospel writers, he includes this long, detailed account in Luke chapter 1 of the foretelling of John the Baptist and Jesus' births. <clears throat> and we have to ask why. Why is Luke doing this? Is there something that we're supposed to see here? Is there something that speaks to our human experience? Is there a reason to slow down and not just pass over this paragraph here? This is our fifth sermon in Luke already. Uh, We're still in chapter one, and there's one more week that we're going to be in Luke chapter one. So six weeks per chapter times 24 chapters. We should finish Luke around the middle of 2020. Um, That was a joke. We're not going to go that slow, but uh, yeah, but th- this first chapter is, is big, right? There's a lot going on here, and I have been making the argument that we need to slow down, and we need to, we need to not miss the details. Luke has gone to great lengths to put these details before us, and we should pay attention to them because they are for our benefit. So we have to ask a question, what is it about us? What is it about our human condition that causes us to not slow down, to not sit and appreciate the beauty and the wonder of this little snippet here about John the Baptist's birth. It's only 10 verses in this huge chapter, right? 80 verses in chapter 1. It's only 10 verses. And I think the reason we don't, the reason we don't slow down and appreciate it, is because our hearts are restless. On the way in, and I would encourage you every time as you come in, to look at the front of the worship guide, we always have a little quote there, and sometimes it's something we're going to talk about directly in the sermon, not always, but there's a quote there from St. Augustine. 
in Confessions. This is probably one of the most popular quotes from Confessions. It's, it's really his own t- personal testimony, and it's a, the whole thing is just a prayer to God. Um, and he says, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Augustine saying to God, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And we all experience restlessness at different stages in our lives, don't we? Teenagers, you're waiting to get your driver's license, right? Or maybe you're already looking forward to graduating and being out on your own. Young adults, you're anticipating and you're restless about the prospects of marriage or a stable job or just kind of overall calling and purpose in your life. What does God have for me in the future? If you're newly married, there's restlessness about wanting to have children or wanting to buy your first home. And then middle-aged folks like me, waiting for your kids to get their driver's license. Waiting for your kids to leave home, and the whole cycle starts all over again, right? And then it's retirement. You're restless. You're, you're waiting for that time when there's fewer responsibilities. You've, you've put in all these years of hard work, right? And there's this kind of restless anticipation. And then empty nesters and retired, right? You're restless to see the grandkids. And then you're restless when they're there, right? And there's just this... Throughout our whole lives, right? We never, we never escape this. We never escape this feeling of restlessness. Like there's always something more. We're always anticipating and waiting for something more. And it never goes away, right? It never leaves us. Restlessness is our reality in a fallen world. That's what Augustine's talking about here. But, but does restlessness have to define our reality? That is the question for us as Christians. Does restlessness have to define our reality? And what would it look like for God to calm our restless hearts this Advent and Christmas season and beyond? If you're taking notes there on the top, kind of the main idea for this morning is that hope for our restless hearts can be found in the unfailing promises of God. Hope for our restless hearts can be found in the unfailing promises of God. You might be saying, well, what on earth does this have to do with John the Baptist? I'm glad you asked, because it has a lot to do with it, actually. This little snippet here, I mean, this whole chapter, but this particular, this little snippet, is a foretaste of greater things to come. It's a foretaste of the coming kingdom. This is the focus of Advent, isn't it? Looking forward. It's looking, we've talked about it, it's looking back and it's looking forward And this is actually the whole focus of John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist comes to fulfill all these promises of the Old Testament. He comes to fulfill what's talked about in Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, right? To to return the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. So he's pointing backward and saying, I've come to to fulfill what God promised, right? But then he's also pointing forward because he's pointing us to Jesus, right? So John's whole life and ministry lives in this tension of, of already not yet, pointing backward, pointing forward. So that kind of sets up where we're going. I want us to to be mindful of those things as we read through this passage and unpack it a little bit here this morning. So let's go to our scripture passage. Let's see how these truths unfold for us. 
Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. Now the time for Elizabeth to give birth, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the first thing we see, again there, it's in your outline. We see that God will fulfill his promises. Therefore, our hearts can rest in him. Those of you who are parents, you know the intensity and the anticipation of the birth of a child. Uh, If you don't have kids of your own, maybe you've experienced this just through friends or family, kind of seeing that anticipation that comes for the mother especially. Uh, You've been carrying this child for nine months and you can't wait to meet him or her. And there is a legitimate restlessness, especially in the last weeks and days leading up to the birth. And then there's a great relief, right? There's a great rest that comes, not physically, because you're not going to get sleep for about six months, but there is a great rest that comes from this this anticipation, this longing, finally this child is here, and there is a resting from that restlessness and that anticipation. John's birth here is a huge sigh of relief for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Not just because she's no longer physically carrying him around, but because this is a fulfillment of God's promises that he has made. This miraculous birth that God granted to this old barren woman. And that's exactly how Luke explains it in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. This should be literally translated, now the time was fulfilled. It's the word for fulfillment. Okay, so... Everything leading up to this is now fulfilled, right? It happened. God fulfilled his promises. Here comes John. After years of praying and hoping and waiting and probably giving up hope, right? We saw that, that Gabriel told Zechariah when he appeared to him in the temple that his prayers have been heard, right? And he's old and we, like we said, he might have he stopped praying 20 years ago. But finally, after all this longing and waiting, they're finally holding their baby boy in their arms. And this is certainly a great cause for rejoicing as we see that the neighbors and relatives do. They join with them in rejoicing. But notice the cause for their rejoicing. Do they say, oh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, after all these years, you finally got what you wanted. You finally got the baby you've been longing for. I'm sure that was part of it, right? But let's remember what we saw just last week. Mary comes to visit Elizabeth. They rejoice together. They sing these songs. John is filled with the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth's womb. And he leaps for joy because the Messiah has been conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. 
And then Mary stays three more months before returning home, before John's birth. So I don't think they're just rejoicing in the fact that John was born. I think they're rejoicing in the fact that God has been at work and God has been fulfilling his promises and God has been doing all these things. And they would have been aware of these conversations that Mary and Elizabeth would have been having and this anticipation. They were aware of the significance of John's birth and the Lord's great mercy toward Elizabeth, which is their cause for rejoicing. It says that they heard that the Lord had shown great mercy mercy to her. And again, just this is one of those, for the sake of kind of translating it in a readable way in English, he, sh- he has shown great mercy, but the word that's used is magnified, okay? It's, it's really that the Lord has magnified his mercy to her. He has made his mercy great, right? We get a magnifying glass and we look at something and it makes it look bigger, right? God has made his mercy to little old Elizabeth This huge thing for everybody to see. He has magnified his mercy. It's the word that Mary used when she said, My soul magnifies the Lord in her song that we just looked at last week. This is also a fulfillment of what Gabriel said to Zechariah in the temple earlier in chapter 1. He said, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Here it is. It's happening. Many are rejoicing at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. So Luke's emphasis here is on John's greatness before the Lord and God's mercy in fulfilling his promises to his people. And that sounds great, right? Okay, so God kept these promises to his people. Well, so what for us? I mean, we're sitting here, it's almost 2020, right? We've got anxiety about what's going on in our country. We've got anxiety about what's going on in the world. And there's restlessness everywhere we turn. Let me just turn on the news. If you don't feel restlessness by about five minutes of of watching the news or five minutes of scrolling through the the headlines, you don't have to read the articles, right? Just scroll through your screen and see the, the headings. If that doesn't cause restlessness in your heart, I don't know what will. So what does the birth of John the Baptist have to do with our hearts resting in the Lord? Again, maybe it's a lot more than we realize. What if the restlessness and the longing that these people felt, that God's people felt in the first century, the restlessness for relief from the pain and the struggles of life, what if that could actually inform us as we sit here 20 centuries later? 20 centuries. I don't think we can fathom that, right? Like most of us will not even live a full century. That's like 20 centuries. Long lifespans, okay? Can you imagine living that long and experiencing all those things and how the world changes, right? I mean, we might think, oh, 2,000 years ago, they can't relate to anything or we can't relate to them. But what if the first advent of the Messiah that ushered in a kingdom that was not of this world, one that we as Christians, we claim to believe it and we claim to submit our lives to this kingdom, What if that already kingdom also brings with it the promise of a second advent, of the eternal not yet kingdom, that our restless hearts are meant to long and pray and wait and look forward to with joyful hope and expectation? Well, it does. And for the believer in Christ, for us brothers and sisters, the belief that God will fulfill his promises to us as his people is not some vain hope. And he demonstrates it right here with John's birth. 
And he demonstrates it each day in each one of our lives as he continues to grant us the faith to believe, the faith to look forward, even though we have not seen with our eyes. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Amen? Well, that reality should cause us to stand amazed at how God is always working out his plan of redemption. God is never inactive in working out his plan of redemption. That's the second thing we see. God is always working out his plan to our continual amazement. Therefore, our hearts can rest in him. I love this next part of the passage. Uh, If you think that like drama over naming babies is like some recent phenomenon, uh, you know, family members coming in and having their opinions. I mean, we've had times where we're like, okay, we got our baby name and we're not telling anybody because we don't want to hear everybody's opinions, right? If you think that's like some recent phenomenon, something to do with social media or whatever, I got news for you. Like, this is as old as probably the people have been around, right? They're saying here that, you know, naming the baby after his father, Zechariah, is, is a good thing. And it would have been fitting, right? Zechariah's name means the Lord has remembered. The Lord remembers Elizabeth and Zechariah. It would have been fitting after the Lord gave them a child to name the child after Zechariah. But Elizabeth, in verse 60, answers with an emphatic no. This is not just a, like, nah, like, I don't really like your idea. This is a, no, absolutely not. No, his name should be John. He shall be called John. Well, why this name? You know what John means? The Lord has been gracious, or the Lord has graciously given. But the nosy people are like, well, why John? Where does this name come from, right? You don't have any relatives named John. So they go to Zechariah because they think, well, you know, right, Elizabeth just had a baby. She's not all there, right? Like maybe she just, I don't know. Zechariah, hey, what's going on? Like John, really? So they make a motion to him. He, and remember, he still can't speak at this point because he disobeyed or he didn't believe what Gabriel said and, and he was struck mute. So they, they find a writing tablet for him and he writes down, his name is John. Contrary to their popular opinion, but in obedience to the Lord's command, he names his son John. And how do our nosy friends here respond? They all wondered. Now this doesn't mean they wondered like, I wonder why they called him John. The word means marveled, or they were amazed, they were astonished. They couldn't believe it, they couldn't figure out what was going on? They were, they were standing in awe of this. Wow! John, what? And the amazement must have been multifaceted. I don't think it's just about the name. I think the amazement comes that this old, barren woman has had a baby, right? I mean, they'd heard about Sarah and, you know, they'd heard stories like this, but like, is this really possible in our day, right? So they're amazed. Second, they're probably amazed that Zechariah, who has been unable to speak for nine months, um, that he has been unable to speak for nine months because of this encounter with the angel. And third, they're amazed at the odd choice of this name, which means the Lord has been gracious. But it's just like the Lord to fulfill his promise and to do so in a way that magnifies his grace. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth did not deserve to have this child. Zechariah did not deserve to ever speak again. And God's people didn't deserve for God to come and break his long silence and send into the world this prophet to prepare the way for the Messiah who was to come into the world. But often, God works in ways that we don't expect, doesn't he? And he always works in ways that we don't deserve. That's called grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And this is the story of all of our lives, isn't it? This isn't just saying that God causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust as a display of his common grace, which Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5. It's not just that. But it's that he saves us. He saves us by his grace when we were dead in our sins, Ephesians chapter 2. This is God working out his plan of redemption in a way that we could have never imagined. We would have never wrote the script this way. The circumstances surrounding John's birth and Jesus' birth and our new birth in Christ should all cause us to stand amazed at what God has done to save his people. I think one of the surest signs from a human perspective of the validity of someone's testimony of coming to faith in Christ is their firm grip on the grace of God. A firm grasp of the reality of the grace of God in their lives. When you hear someone say, how could God save someone like me? Think about John Newton, slave ship captain. He's converted in the midst of of this horrible life that he's living And he writes the song, Amazing Grace, that starts off famously, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That was very personal for Newton, right? He knew that he was a wretch. He knew that he was dead in his sin. But you don't have to be a slave ship captain to experience this type of grace. You don't even have to be leading an outwardly wicked life by worldly standards. Some of the most radical conversions are about people who are trying to live religiously and do the right things for all the wrong reasons. Go read the testimonies of Martin Luther and John Wesley. Go read about their conversions. They're in the ministry, right? They think they're serving God. And God reaches out and awakens them to his grace. The point is that no matter where anyone is, no matter where anyone is at in their life in relation to God, when there is an awakening in the soul to the reality of our sin and to the grace of God God in Christ as the only solution for that sin, the only way that we can be saved, then there is an irresistible urge to sing out, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And our hearts are filled with joy because of the wondrous works of God. And this is the type of reaction we see here in this last section. That God's wondrous works fill our hearts. Therefore, our hearts can rest in him. Immediately after Zechariah obeys God and names his son John, the temporary speaking ban is lifted and his tongue is loosed and he is finally able to speak. And what does he do? Immediately, he speaks, blessing God. 
Now, we don't know this for sure, but I kind of want to throw this out there, and I, I think this is probably the best way to read this. But I'm guessing that the thing that immediately comes out of his mouth is the prophecy that's in verses 68 through 79, okay? Luke doesn't put it in this story because he wants to set it apart and show us Zechariah's prophecy. But I, I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm pretty sure, based on a few things here, that when he opens his mouth and blesses God, this is immediately what he says. Because he starts off, he says, Blessed be the God of Israel. This is in verse 68. Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So this prophecy that Zechariah is going to give about John, which we're going to look at next week, this is what causes the fear to come upon the people, all these neighbors in verse 65. And then also the next part of verse 65 indicates that Zechariah's prophecy is the content of what they heard because it says, all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. So Luke is like kind of saying like, here's what happened over the next several you know, weeks and months, right? Like they're all laying these things up in their hearts and they're all being talked about. This couldn't be talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea like in that moment, right? So the prophecy is the content of what is being talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. Now, of course, all these things there could refer just to John's birth and his name. But then they say, what then will this child be? Which all who heard it were asking. So again, this is probably, this question, what will this child be, is probably in in response to Zechariah's prophecy, where he gives this detailed explanation of of who John is going to be. Okay, and then Luke concludes with the important reminder that the hand of the Lord was with him, that is, with John the Baptist. And this should be obvious because of everything that has happened, because of his miraculous birth, because of him, him being filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. But Luke doesn't want us to forget that God is actively and intimately involved in all of these details. When we see this, the hand of the Lord, it's, it's a description of God being actively and intimately involved in something. So he was with him at his birth, and he will be with him throughout his life and throughout his ministry and even in his death. But I want us to come back to this verse in verse... Um, 66. It says, all who heard these things laid them up in their hearts. So, again, I think this is Zechariah's prophecy. They're laying these things up that he has said in their hearts and saying, what will this child be? And this here is all about anticipation. These relatives and these neighbors of Zechariah and Elizabeth have just witnessed some pretty amazing things. But they're a forward-looking people. They're wondering in amazement about what God is up to. God's wondrous works fill their hearts as they saw God working out his plan and fulfilling his promises. And we get to do the same thing, don't we? We get to see God working out his plan and fulfilling his promises in our lives and in the lives of those around us, especially here in our church as we do life together. We get to rejoice together and to stand amazed together at how God is at work in our midst. And again, during this Advent and Christmas season, we focus on the first coming of the Son of God, looking back with joy, filling our hearts to our Savior who has come and lived and died in our place. He went to the cross for us. 
where God fulfilled his purposes to pierce his son for our transgressions, to crush him for our iniquities, and to lay on him the iniquity of us all, that we might be freed from the power of sin and death. And that's the message of the gospel. That's what God has done, and that's why we gather together week in and week out to stand amazed at his plan of salvation, to worship him, to have our hearts filled with joy and thanksgiving, so that we can find true rest amidst the rat race of our lives in this world. But it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop with looking back and being thankful and rejoicing. We look forward in joyful expectation for his second coming. I said last week that of the two of these looking back and looking forward, that I think looking forward is the hardest, right? Which seems kind of crazy because it's easier for us, I think, a lot of times to look back and say, okay, God the Son was incarnate in the womb of a virgin, right? Was born in this podunk town, grew up, lives this perfect life, dies on a cross, rises again from the dead, right, and ascends into heaven, like, that's easier for us to believe than to actually believe that he's coming back again, which is kind of crazy, right, kind of messed up. As Chris was reading the children's story, I was thinking about this, um, just as a kid, kind of growing up in a, in a couple different churches that didn't really preach the gospel, like, I remember hearing the Christmas story all the time, but I don't remember anybody talking about Jesus coming back again, And that that's what our hope was in, right? It was all just this, like, nostalgic, like, looking back, right? And, oh, that's great. This happened. I mean, of course it's great. But that's not the end of the story, right? And we have to be looking forward. But that's the hardest part, isn't it? The hardest part is waiting and believing that it's actually true and that it's actually going to happen. And for a lot of us, it, it won't happen in our lifetime. Maybe it won't happen in the lifetime of anyone here. That doesn't mean we shouldn't still look forward with expectation. Because if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, our expectation is that we're going to be with the Lord, right? And that he is going to come back. Just thinking about this and how this applies to our lives. After Jesus rose from the dead, he said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Brothers and sisters, our hearts can truly find rest in him. We can rest in the fact that he is working out his plan of redemption and he is fulfilling his promises to his people. But it is an active, forward-looking, faith-testing, future-anticipating rest. Okay, It doesn't just happen. We need to be active. We need to be seeking God. We need to be faith-filled in seeking him, in anticipating, in hoping, and in waiting. So may God grant us May God be gracious to us as we wait and pray and hope and seek him. Let's pray together. Father, we need this reminder day in and day out that you are coming again. That you are coming to make all things new. That you are coming to judge the living and the dead. And that your kingdom will have no end. God, thank you that we get a foretaste of that as we experience the kingdom of God in the here and now, as we experience the forgiveness of sins, 
as we experience your grace and mercy in our lives, as we get an opportunity to, to share that with other people, as we get to live life together in community, as we get to rejoice together for who you are, what you've done for us, for how you've fulfilled your promises. But Father, we need to look forward. We need to actively wait and actively pursue you. We need to seek your face in prayer. We need to run to you. We need to long with expectation for your coming. God, give us eyes to see. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. God, may we have the faith to believe your promises, to look forward with hope for your coming. God, sustain us in this season and beyond. Help us to truly find rest for our restless hearts in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.